0: Uh, today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, around you somewhere, and uh, someone would love to hand you one. <clears throat> uh, we're also going to partake of communion here today, so we'll prepare our hearts as we study God's Word and partake of the Lord's Supper uh, in a little bit. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Uh, We're into, as I said, the second major portion of Luke's book in his gospel as he recounts for us the ministry of Jesus Christ. He he stepped into his public ministry at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, and we saw the temptation passages there between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness. And then we've seen for the past two weeks, Jesus step into public renown, where reports are going out about who this person is. And then we saw Jesus, number one, show up in his hometown, uh, on his home court, offending people left and right by saying that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61. And then last week, we got to hear from Jonathan, who showed us Jesus in another synagogue, uh, teaching with a word of authority, and he taught with with power. Didn't Jonathan do awesome? Weren't you encouraged by him? Man, I, like, yeah. I was... Uh, I was about to get saved up there in the balcony, man. It was, it was good. It was ministering to my heart as well. I hope it did uh, for you. But uh, we're going to look at really the last uh, portion of Luke chapter 4, 438 through the end of the chapter. And it, it feels a little bit out of place. Uh, But what I want to show you in this passage is something of a tension that has been growing in this chapter. You don't uh, discern it right away. You see it as Jesus begins to, um, do I need to switch my microphone? Right, no, you're good. Okay, it's just, I'm just going to talk loud. Uh, you see it as Jesus steps into really the social context in which he's going to minister in his hometown, in the synagogue. And we're going to continue that theme as Jesus encounters not a demon. Uh, well, he will encounter demons, but we're going to be introduced to something that Jesus hasn't faced yet in his public ministry. and He's going to be introduced to a sick person. Uh, And we're going to see how this individual who's anointed uh, by God in heaven, by the spirit is going to interact with the sick and with also the demon possessed. And the end of this chapter is a little bit um, odd uh, because I think when, you know, we said two weeks ago that Jesus picks picks fights, uh, he talks to his hometown synagogue like they ought to know who he is and instead they're offended by him. Uh, And what you're going to see here today is really this growing um, tension between Jesus and people. Uh, and you're going to see Jesus both be incredibly tenacious about what God has called him to do and incredibly tender toward the people that he ministers to. This is a very important section of Luke 4 because it really prepares us for what Luke gives us in Luke chapter 5. We get to, we'll get to the end of this chapter and it's going to end the same way the chapter began with Jesus in the desolate wilderness. So I hope that'll be uh, instructive to you as we work through it. Let me pray, and then we'll uh, jump in to see what Christ has to teach us here this morning. Father, for these few minutes, as we approach your word, we come humbly. Acknowledge that when we open your word, it's you speaking and not us. And we want to... uh, Have the appropriate posture when we come to your word, that we would open our ears to what you might have to teach us here this morning, that you might give us great grace to understand your word, that the idols of our hearts would be exposed and repented of, and that we would gain great joy as a result of looking at Christ our King. So we pause and ask for your Spirit to give light to our eyes and understanding to our minds, that we would know the love of Christ, and that you would lead us as we study in Christ's name. Amen. All right, look at 4, verse 38, and we'll go all the way through here, 4, verse 44. Uh, this this section is going to turn on a series of contrasts, which I'll, I'll kind of point them out as we move through this passage. But the first contrast shows up right here in four thirty-eight. Here's what Luke says, he, and he, speaking of Jesus, arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Jesus is doing ministry in Capernaum around a synagogue in the area of Galilee. That's probably where Simon's house was. We're introduced to Simon with relatively no introduction whatsoever. We'll learn more about who he is next week as we encounter him and uh, James and John leaving their nets and uh, following after Jesus. But Simon Peter is a pretty popular character biblically, so Luke doesn't feel the need to introduce uh, him to us right here. In fact, this section in the book of Luke is put toward the for, the front of Jesus' ministry, where chronologically speaking, it happens in about Matthew chapter 8. It happens after the Sermon on the Mount, after the healing of the leper, after the healing of the centurion servant. That's when we're introduced to Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law in Matthew. But here, Luke has been consistently weaving his gospel account together to show us something really important about Jesus and who he is. Luke Luke is intentionally directing our minds to understand something about the silhouette of Jesus and who we understand him to be. So right from the beginning, we've said in Luke chapter four that he is the one who can overcome the temptations of Satan. He's the one in the next vignette that is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. In the next uh, little story, Jesus is in the synagogue and his word possesses authority and power. So we're building kind of Jesus's uh, rap sheet for better, or lack of a better term uh, for us to under that's a terrible illustration we're building Jesus's our understanding of Jesus and who he is so by this point what we're watching Luke record for us is, is an understanding that this individual is impressive this individual has authority this individual can defeat Satan and the demonic this individual is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic hope in which the nation of Israel has put their trust And now here Jesus moves out from a familiar setting in the synagogue where he's teacher-preacher and he moves into a semi-private setting where he's at home. And he walks into the house of Simon. Now, Simon probably invited Jesus. They're in the synagogue on the Sabbath where Jesus is teaching and preaching that day. And they go to have the Sabbath meal. And Jesus arrives in Simon's house. So we go from a public setting to a private setting. And the question that we all are going to ask and answer is, has Jesus? To, what is Jesus like at your house? What is Jesus like when he shows up at home? And it's not just Jesus at church. Or Jesus on Sunday, Jesus on the Sabbath day, where he's preaching and teaching the truths of things, but now he steps into a social context that's very familiar to all of us. Look at what he says. He arose, left the synagogue, and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. Now, some of you probably don't live with your mother-in-law. I don't live with my mother-in-law currently. Maybe that's a normal situation for you, but we learn a couple of things about Simon's household. One, Simon's married. Number two, Simon's wife's dad is probably dead. And Simon and his wife have now taken in his wife's mother. So Simon's mother-in-law is in the context of their home. And in Matthew, when Matthew records this, it says that Jesus observes her and sees that she is unwell. But what you're going to see if you compare the Matthew and the Luke accounts is that there's a different emphasis that Luke is trying to get us to see. Luke is going to, in effect, remove some things that we know about this encounter to help bring some truths about Jesus to the front for us to understand who he is. So in Matthew, Jesus sees his mother-in-law, but that's not what happens here. Here, Jesus walks into the home. Simon, we know, has a mother-in-law who's ill with a high fever. Luke, the physician, is the only gospel writer who includes that Simon's mother-in-law has a MEGA fever. She's got a mega fever. It's a big fever. Now, during this time, some commentators would say that there would be a distinction between fevers. I don't know if that's true or not. Some commentators agree with that. Some do not. But Luke, as a physician, walks in and goes, she's in a bad way. She's burning up. And I can tell you by the fact that we walked into this house. So... Simon's mother-in-law has a high fever, and the response is, I think, important. Because what Jesus has been doing up to this point is Jesus in his public ministry is stepping into social situations. And demanding now that the social situations, the synagogue preaching and teaching, orient its understanding around himself and who he is. But what we have here in the moment that Jesus enters into a home is now we have a much more private, much more personal relationship with the guy who we just saw teaching in the synagogue. With the guy who was just casting out demons with a word. And we're wondering what kind of upfront personality is he going to be when there's no public? When it's just private? When it's me, my wife, and my sick mother-in-law, who is Jesus in that situation? Now, can social situations change the way you act? You want to make sure that, you know, you have all of your buttons buttoned straight up and down if you're going to stand up in front of 500 people, arguably, right? You want to make sure that you're put together, that you're saying the right things and speaking with the appropriate tone of voice. And now Jesus is going to go from public environment to private environment, and we're about to see what he's like. It's one thing to be public and to do ministry publicly when you're not around people. It's very easy to stand up in front of people and say things to them. They may never see you again. They may get offended by what you say. But we don't have really a lot of relationship in this context. But it's far different if you come into my home. It's far different when you go into somebody else's home. And here's how Jesus enters into this environment. And now the people who are there, who see Jesus as he is the upfront personality at this point in his ministry career, begin to ask the upfront personality to help. They invite Jesus to enter into the pain and the difficulty and the high-fever situation that we have with my mother-in-law. And they're appealing to Jesus for the mother-in-law. Now, I want you to, let's put ourselves there. I don't know if you're kind of a tough-it-out when you get sick kind of person, or if you're like a, oh, I need help. Where is the chicken noodle soup and I can ring my bell? I don't know who you are. I don't know who this woman is. I'm not sure how she's encountering this difficulty, but with an incredibly high fever, I know for me, when I get a fever, I'm in trouble, right? Now, you have little kids, they can get to they they can have a fever of about 138 and they're still fine. But when I get a fever of 101, it it's not it's not good. Daddy's sick. So this woman has a high fever. Let's see what they do. They appeal to her, to him on her behalf. Verse 39, and he stood over her. Luke uses that term over rarely in his gospel. The only other time I believe it's used is over in Luke 10 when Jesus gives the apostles authority over the demons as they go out to minister. So when you watch Jesus step into this situation with this sick, ailing woman, the first thing Jesus does is assume a posture of authority. Now, watch what he says. He stood over her and he rebuked the fever, which is weird, isn't it? Say yes. Yeah, it's weird because the word rebuke is used typically of people. In Luke's account, it's only used one other point in all of Luke's writing to not refer to a particular individual, and it's used when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, showing... That he has absolute authority over the wind and the waves. Now Jesus stands up, and as Jesus, have we seen Jesus use the rebuke word before? Just look back up in the previous paragraph. Who, who does he rebuke in the previous paragraph in Luke 4? He rebukes, go ahead. Somebody said it. He rebukes a demon. So Jesus is taking the very same. Now, does the demon leave? Does the demon put up any resistance whatsoever? No. None whatsoever. So we have Luke giving us a similar situation where this isn't a demonic issue, this is an issue of disease. And Jesus stands over the sick individual with disease. He rebukes the disease, and it what? Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? He rebukes it, and it leaves. Now, let me give you some things about Jesus' method of healing in this situation. Number one, Jesus rebukes with a word. How does Jesus cast out demons? With a word. So if Jesus has total authority, control, and dominion over the spiritual realm, does Jesus have total authority and control over the physical realm? Can Jesus have authority over bacteria and viruses and infections? Yeah, he does. He does. He stands as the Lord of the spiritual and the Lord of the physical. He has total authority in both places. Number two, Jesus Jesus heals instantaneously. Now, when I get a fever, the fever turns into a sore throat, and the sore throat turns into congestion, and the congestion turns into a cough, and the cough hangs out for about 18 weeks till it finally goes away, and I am wholly healed completely. That's not how Jesus heals. Jesus heals... With a word, he heals instantaneously, and he heals completely thoroughly. Any virus, any bacteria, any infection, any cough is completely banished and gone. How do we know? We know that Jesus heals totally and not partially. He doesn't heal progressively. He heals immediately because of how this woman responds. Look at the remainder of the verse. The woman does what? She immediately rises and began to serve them. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but what's the purpose of your good health? serving Christ. Do you know, what you, you know what I hate about being sick? Is just wanting to be back to normal. I just want to get back to not having the sore throat. I just want to get back to where I'm not in a coughing fit. I just want to get back to where I can't, I, I constantly have to shift and move and snore and wake my wife up and have congestion. I just want to be able to breathe again. And this woman doesn't take her good health for granted, doesn't she? She immediately gets up and starts to serve and be about the Lord's purposes in her life. What's the purpose of good health? Serving Christ, right? How often are we frustrated with being sick because it's hindering our ability to serve Christ? Eesh, right? This woman is immediately healed and moves on to her service and her Desire to submit her good health into the Lord's hands to be used for his purposes, whatever she wants. And she thinks it's worth her good health spending it, I'm sorry, spending her good health on the service of her Lord. Now that's good news, isn't it? Amen. Isn't that what we want to do with our good health as we have it? Are we going to get old and die and have bad knees and arthritis and those things? Are those things coming? Amen. They're coming. Serve the Lord today. Put it to work today. you young, strong, fast. You do CrossFit. Let's see you serve in kids ministry. See if you can hack it there. Amen? Let's go. So she's ready to serve. And now this healing becomes a tuning fork where her healing starts to vibrate and resonate. And it's going to call all kinds of other people to Jesus' side. So we go from public to private. We go from a few individuals to a lot of individuals. We go from daytime in the beginning of the Sabbath morning as they gather to hear the preaching of God's word to nighttime, end of the Sabbath. Now at the end of the Sabbath, everybody is free to travel, everybody's free to work, we've had our rest, we're finished. But as the sun sets, what you have here, Jesus, after a full day of ministry and teaching and preaching, casting out demons, healing Simon's mother-in-law, people start to show up. I heard somebody is here who can heal. I heard, I got a problem that we need to deal with. And as the sun is setting, the very time where you expect people to turn in, people to go home, people to lay down, it starts to get real busy. It's no longer private, it's now public. Look at verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. What happened in the previous setting? Simon, his wife, Say, Jesus, will you take care of my mother-in-law? Jesus rebukes the fever. It leaves immediately. She starts to serve. Now is that story, how fast do you think that story spreads? Fast. Fast. Look at the scope of the the, uh, uh, the thing that Luke says. Verse 40. The sun was setting and all, circle that, all those who had what? What? Annie, is that a big scope? All the people who knew someone who might be sick. How many people do you think you could gather outside of our church if you just put out the call? All people who know somebody who's sick come to church. Come to Simon's house. And you can feel the rising crowd, can't you? As people start to stream out to hear this individual they only heard at church one time and who's casting out demons, and now, who can heal the sick? All who had any who were sick with various diseases, and they brought them to him. Now, Matt, just put yourself on Simon's couch. And you just saw Jesus heal Simon's mother-in-law. And now you hear people who are starting to come to the door, and they have sick individuals, and they want to talk to Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And you can imagine the hundreds of people that begin to gather as word starts to spread. We already said in the beginning of Luke chapter 4 that a report went out about Jesus. So Jesus has some name recognition. He's got some popularity, but now he's doing something that nobody else can do. He's healing with a word. He's healing instantaneously. He's healing not progressively, but powerfully, completely, and totally. Now, if you're, raise your hand if you're in the medical world, just for a second. Come on, be proud of the fact that you're in the medical world, just, just for me, thank you. Now imagine a situation where you have hundreds, if not thousands of individuals who are bringing their mom, their sister, their brother, their friend into Simon's house. You can imagine the situation where now you're moving into triage, can't you? You're thinking, all right, we got to get the people with the tumors to the MRI. We got to get the people with broken bones over here. We got to get the individuals who have COVID in the back, way far away, get them back. Uh, We got to get the people with leprosy, slightly less of a problem than COVID (laughs) up here. We got to make, you're doing triage all over the place, right? You're putting people in, in the right situation. You got hundreds of people to deal with. Do you have I mean, anybody working in the ER, don't you feel this pressure as a physician? We got to make sure we get the right people who have the most severe issues to Jesus as fast as possible. And what I want you to see about Jesus in this situation, the great physician, the great physician Jesus Christ, is not efficient. He is profoundly inefficient. He's had a whole day of casting out demons. I don't know. I've never done it. Maybe that makes you tired. But he's had a meal. He's healed a lady. And now he's got to heal all of these people who are knocking on the door and asking for help. And Jesus doesn't heal with a word. Why? can he heal with a word? In Matthew chapter 8, he heals the centurion by saying, "Hey, I'm not even going to come into your house. I'm going to heal with a word. Boom! It's done, just like that. You had faith. I got it. One word done. He could do the same thing. He could walk out and go, whole, healed, no skin cancer, no disease, no tumors, just like that. But he doesn't do that. Verse 40. Now, if you have a scope." of any and all. What you have here is the profound inefficiency of Jesus Christ dealing with the sick. Look at what he does. He laid hands on every one of them. Isn't that incredible? You're telling me that when I have emotional, spiritual, physical disability that Jesus cares enough about me to draw near to me To lay his hands on... Do you know that the laying on of hands isn't in the Old Testament or any of the rabbinical writings? It's usually done in the context of spiritual things. It's never done in the context of healing. And Jesus, the great physician, steps into the pain and the suffering of individuals to lay his hands on them individually to let them know that I am healing you and I'm not going to do it with distance. I'm going to do it with nearness. I'm going to do it by drawing near to you into your space. Listen, if you've ever been sick and you've ever had to be vulnerable in the presence of a physician, you know how tender of a space that that is, amen? Where you feel like I don't know how to fix this thing in my body. And for you to have a physician who takes time and care and tenderness to treat you like an individual and not like a disease, you know what that's like. When I was growing up, my mom tells this story. My mom had five kids, three boys, two girls, and we had a, a pediatrician named Dr. Green. And sh- inevitably, she would take one of her children to Dr. Green, and at a certain point with kids, you, you get to the point where you're pretty good at diagnosing it on your own as a mom, right? You can feel out whether or not we need to go to the pediatrician or you're just gonna walk it off. Uh, you get pretty good at that as a parent. And my mom tells this story where she arrives with a kid who is running a fever and running a temperature. And she's listing for the pediatrician all of these problems that are going on. Well, he's, he's not, you know, feeling good, and he's got this temperature, and he's got this thing, and it's not working, and the temperature is this high. And she had the pediatrician pause and stop her and say, Mrs. Heron, here we don't treat temperatures. We treat children. And what Jesus does in this moment is draw near to those who can't help themselves and lay hands on them so that they would know his healing touch. They would know that he draws near to those who are facing issues of disease. He doesn't just stand back. He enters into those things. Now imagine you're a physician in Capernaum at this time. And your schedule the next day, the day after the Sabbath, because nobody can work, is packed. Because you've had individuals that you've been ministering to, you've been caring for for a long time. And now you're telling me the very next day, they're Monday, nobody's going to show. Why? Because we met this guy who can heal with the word instantaneously. We met this individual who can heal totally with no, progress, with no sequential progress or no, we, that's not working, let's try this again. It's someone who knows the human body so well that he can heal the issue like that. And he lays hands on all of them and heals them. Verse 41, the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. But this now Luke draws our attention to something very, very important. He doesn't just heal the sick and he doesn't just cast out demons. He now silences the demons, which he's done before. But Luke gives a reason why Jesus will silence the demons. And the reason Jesus will silence the demons here is because they know that he was the Christ. Remember what the spirit revealed to Simeon? The Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. So we have two things here. We have his essential identity as the Son of God, but we also have his office. We have Joe Biden, the individual, but we also have his office, the president. We have Jesus, the Son of God, and his essential identity, but also now his office as Christ, which is the anointed one, the one who has come, called of God, anointed by God, to be the one in whom people put their hope. And he will silence the demons because he will not allow the demons to acknowledge that Jesus is the one in whom people should put their hope. He won't take that press. Remember what we said last week, two weeks ago? Jesus will not allow the demons or the people to define his identity. He will define it for himself. 42. When it was day. Public, private. Daytime, nighttime, Daytime. How late do you think the healing service went? You think Jesus left any? I think he laid his hands on everyone. How late into the night do you think Jesus was healing with hundreds of people? Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus gets up early and he goes to a desolate place to pray. Luke doesn't tell us that. Luke has an emphasis on prayer, but he doesn't tell it that to us here. But he tells us now, as the sun begins to rise, we find Jesus doing something. Verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Well, isn't that how Luke chapter 4 started? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Well, why are we back in the wilderness? We're back in the wilderness after arguably one of the greatest healing ministries ever. And Jesus is back in the wilderness alone with his heavenly father. Have you felt throughout chapter 4 the growing social pressure? Have you felt the expectations on Jesus begin to rise? See, when Jesus begins his ministry and steps into his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, he offends people. And he says, there was... No one healed but Naaman the Syrian. There was no one whom God sent the prophet to except this widow over here. And everybody is enraged. And Jesus enters the synagogue in Galilee, in Capernaum. And he casts out a demon. And people are amazed and astonished at the fact that Jesus can actually conquer the demonic. And now Jesus steps into a healing ministry. And he's got perhaps the greatest, most popular, most powerful, spectacular, and amazing, add your own adjective in their ministries ever, healing physical disease. And where we find Jesus the very next morning is communing with his heavenly father. Now that's interesting. Why is it that Jesus is doing that? And it shows up in the very next part of the verse. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Three different verbs filled with expectation. Can you feel them? Imagine the hundreds of people who who now carry the story of Jesus Christ, the man in the synagogue who can cast out demons and heal the sick. Imagine how the report is swelling. Imagine the followers that are getting amassed and seeking this individual. And they're coming with an ambition. They're coming with an agenda. They're coming with a plan for Jesus. And we find Jesus alone in a desolate place. And popularity finds him. Just pause for a minute and imagine if you had the kind of success that Jesus had right here. Imagine the social pressure. Imagine the draw. Imagine the problems that you could fix. Imagine if every time you gave counsel in your line of work, it was godly and it accomplished everything that God wanted it to. Imagine you were the one that people went to to listen to. The people sought him. They're looking for him. Number two, they came to him. They arrived on the scene. And number three, they would have kept him from leaving him. See, Jesus now experiences, I won't call it a temptation, let's just call it a tension. But he experiences the tension between doing something helpful and doing what is best, doing something remarkable and doing what is best, doing something miraculous and doing what is best, doing what is fantastic and popular and meaningful and good and restorative and doing what is best. And I'm so thankful that this passage is here because it exposes temptation for all of us. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? He says, If we have hope in Christ for this life only, we are of most people of all to be pitied. See, what happens if... One of the reasons that when you move through the biblical literature, miracles are rare is that miracles have a way of rooting us here. Miracles only show up in Moses, in Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. So by the end of your Bible, you get to the pastoral ministries, Timothy isn't being told, hey, do some miracles. Because miracles are meant to point to the messenger. Miracles are meant to validate the message and the messenger of the individual that is speaking. So miracles are given at Sinai when God's word is given to Moses. Miracles are given to Elijah and Elisha to validate that they are the prophets that God has sent. Miracles are given to Christ and the apostles to validate the message of salvation that is given through Jesus Christ. It's as if heaven stands up and suspends the normal order and goes, This is is right he is who he says he is verse 43 and I'm so thankful this is here you are thankful this is here and you go I don't know Steve I'd like to have better knees I'd really like for Jesus to show up and heal some physical ailments that I have I'd really not like to go through that surgery. Couldn't just Jesus with a word heal that problem in my life? And the reality is, is every single person that Jesus healed at this time in his ministry is dead. Right? None of them are still around. You want to know one of the worst people I want to be in the Bible is Lazarus. Jesus doesn't come on time. His sisters are crying, he's got to die, wait four days, and then Jesus brings him back. And you've got to think, Lazarus comes out of the tomb like, man, come I was just in the place, and now, ah, now i got to die again. And the problem is, is with... Passages like this that stoke our hearts for miracles, where we want God to intervene and to show up and to give us an encounter and a certainty of His presence, what we're all faced with is the fact that we're going to die. Whether it's tomorrow or 50 years, we're going to die. And Jesus in wisdom and in tenderness to those who are facing difficulty and hardship, in his drawing near to those with physical diseases, at the same time has remarkable tenacity to go, that's not why I'm here. And he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Amen? Isn't that good news? All through Luke chapter 4, what you, have, what you have been seeing is, you study this on you yourself and you read it yourself. Look at how the crowds are responding to Jesus. In the beginning of the synagogue, they're, they're uh, offended at him, right? How dare Jesus explode our small town mentality about who he is? How dare he say that we're not in unless we put our faith and trust in him? When he enters into the synagogue at Galilee, what's he do? He casts out demons with a word, doesn't allow them to speak, and everybody is what? Astonished and amazed. He's incredible. Now he heals with a word, and it seems at this point, as we consider the crowd's response to Jesus, they continue to come to him with a plan and an agenda to make Jesus fit into their story and their town with their issues. And Jesus says, I will not be reduced to your own personal butler. Does that make you mad? It should, if you're being honest about a passage like this. Don't tell me you're not frustrated at God having different plans than you think are best for you. Amen? And Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's the revelation of the king who welcomes people into right relationship with God and who gives them a secure, forgiven, redeemed, restored eternity. Not 80 years here. And Jesus resists the temptation to popularity because he knows why he's here. He's here to tell people about the forgiveness of sins. He's here to tell people that they can have a right relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. And he says, I must preach because this, look at what he says, is why I was sent. I was sent for this purpose. I didn't come as a healer merely. I didn't come as someone who can just cast out demons. I came to proclaim the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something for us as a church. Whatever God's going to call us to as a church... He is going to call us into dealing with the biggest problem that every human has. And that's proclaiming the kingdom of God and that people can be forgiven from sins, brought into right relationship with God, and their eternity forever can be healed and whole. Jesus is not calling us into some small-town, parochial, theological preference kind of relationship where aren't we glad we have Jesus of Citadel Square but not Jesus for the nations? Jesus is not calling us into, come into a relationship with me where I am now your own personal butler and all of your prayers get answered and your problems get fixed. What's remarkable about Jesus and the crowds up to this point in the story is that nobody's following Jesus. Everybody's amazed by Jesus. Everybody's astonished by Jesus. Some people are even offended by Jesus. But nobody goes, I've got to reorient my entire life around him. Rather, what they're saying is Jesus needs to stay here in our town because we got some problems in our town. Jesus needs to quit traveling so much, preaching the kingdom of God. He's got to deal with the issues that we have in our zip code. And Jesus says, I am not going to be held down to your agenda. Rather, I have a mission of proclaiming salvation for every sinner under heaven. Amen? Isn't that the purpose of why Jesus came? Isn't that the promise that we preach to people? One of the problems that you have when you focus only on Jesus' miracles and his commitment to you and your particular issue at the time is that, you know the story of Daniel, the very first vision Daniel gets of the statue. You remember that? And you got the, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Daniel comes and goes, hey, here's this statue. you got the head of gold, the arms of silver, the belly and legs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the toes iron mixed in clay. And he tells this story, and he tells them, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the top kingdom, way to go. You're the gold, whoa, awesome. Other kingdoms are gonna come. And at the end of the vision, he says that there's a rock cut without human hands that comes and strikes the statue on the feet and destroys the statue, and the stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole, say earth. That's okay, you can read it later. It becomes, it fills the whole earth. What is Jesus saying? What is Daniel telling us? He's telling us that our small kingdoms will one day be destroyed because he's bringing his kingdom. Because his kingdom is going to be the one at the end of time when everything burns and God takes apart the universe all the way down to its atoms, remakes it all, heaven comes down to earth, and the whole kingdom is over the whole earth where Jesus is Lord. And these folks want Jesus for their fevers. Now, is it wrong to pray to Jesus for fevers? No, but don't forget who you're praying to. Don't forget the agenda that Jesus has to bring the kingdom, to bring forgiveness, to bring redemption, to bring reconciliation. And as he deals with the pressure and the temptation and the tension of disappointing people for the sake of what he knows he is called to do, this passage ends with verse 44, with the good news being preached in other places. What compels Jesus Christ? The salvation of sinners. What compels the church? Not that we would reduce Jesus to our own theological preferences for our 80 years, but that we are invited. You know, this is grammar 101. You can't follow Jesus unless you're following Jesus. Jesus isn't supposed to follow you, Jesus ain't going to follow you. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. We're called to follow Jesus. That means we reorient our North Star around Jesus and who He is, and what's Jesus doing? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, inviting sinners to be forgiven, people to get redeemed. Amen? Okay, you're with me. I'm out of time. It's 11:10 and I'm hot. Last word. Church, Jesus is going to call us into faith-filled following. Jesus is not calling you to selfish staying. You hear me? Jesus is leading us to faith-filled following. So my heart for you, our elders' heart for you, our desire for this church is that we will be totally committed to aligning our hearts and minds and dreams and desires to following the one who preaches the good news of the kingdom. That's our hope. That's what we have to offer. Let's pray. Father, we pray even now as we prepare our hearts for communion that you might reveal the ways in which we treat you like a butler. That you might reveal to us the ways in which we underestimate what you're doing in our lives. Father, we pause and prepare our hearts acknowledging that you are God and we are not, that you're the one who can forgive sins. As the psalm says, with you is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So Father, we repent of our tendency to treat you as less than who you are. Father, would this church orient itself around the good news of the kingdom of God? That we would not settle for lesser, smaller versions. But that we would be filled with people who want to follow you by faith. And that we would take the good news of the kingdom of God out to our neighbors, our family, our friends. And that you might get the glory. In Christ's name, amen.